I'm Duncan Sinclair, and this is Courage Incorporated. Throughout this first season, I've spoken to courageous leaders from across Canada, talking about hopes, concerns, and recommendations about the economy and the future of our country as a whole. And like in all manner of social life these days, the pandemic and its effect on our society was a constant in every one of our conversations. We began this season by speaking with Tabitha Bull, president of the Canadian Council of Aboriginal Business, who shared the challenges Indigenous-owned businesses faced during lockdown measures and her vision for an equitable economy. We held a lively conversation with Andrea Barrett, former president of the Canadian Black Chamber of Commerce, who shared the incredible work being done to support Black-owned businesses and urged Corporate Canada to live up to commitments made worldwide during the Black Lives Matter protests. Laura Jones, Executive Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, joined us and emphasized the importance of small and medium-sized businesses to Canada's economy and the CFIB's advocacy on their behalf. And our last episode offered a cross-border conversation with Mary Scott Greenwood, or as she likes to be called, Scotty, who is the Executive Officer of the Canadian American Business Council and a former political appointee in the Clinton administration. Scotty and I talked about Canada-U.S. relations and lessons learned from the pandemic in order for our countries to become stronger together. Now, today's conversation is with a true leader among leaders. Monique LaRue is the chair of the Industry Strategy Council, the government advisory forum dedicated to studying the industry fallout from COVID-19. Monique has led the council since its creation in May of 2020, applying her finance and business expertise to build industry-government partnerships, identify at-risk sectors, invest in high-growth areas, and advise relevant ministers on economic policy. Monique previously served as President and Chief Executive Officer and Chair of the Board of the Desjardins Group. So let's dive in. I think you'll get a lot out of this conversation. I know I certainly did. Well, Monique, it's wonderful to have you on Courage Incorporated. And throughout your career, you've been recognized for your leadership and your contributions to business and society. And so in May of last year, you became chair of the government's new Industry Strategy Council that partners with business leaders to better assess and respond to the realities of COVID-19 on business. And I think we'd all be curious to understand what did it mean for you to be entrusted with this role? And what can you tell us about the work that's been done so far? Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It was a great privilege, to be honest, uh, to be uh, invited uh, in May of 2020 to chair the Industry Strategy Council. And you need to remember the context at that point in time, a lot of uncertainty, uncertainty, you know, with markets, uncertainty with people. We had no view about vaccination. So we started the journey with the support of ICED and other departments in June. And we were able to engage into those conversations, talking to CEOs of large organizations, but also talking to small businesses owners, as well as leaders in the indigenous communities. And uh, during the month of August, September, October, we were able to propose an action plan, a framework of recommendations in three phases, short, 
mid long term. Under the, I would say, the words of the three R's, restart, recover, reimagine. Because we felt that this crisis was to be very special, transformative, accelerating some of the changes and some of the issues and some of the challenges we are facing in Canada. So we had to deal with it on a short-term basis, but there was an opportunity, again, listening from all the insights that we were getting across Canada for the country and for Canadian companies and for the government to take this crisis in order to reimagine and looking forward to what we can do in the world going to 2030. Well, that, that's a great deal of work to complete in a short time frame. Do you feel the report has made an impact? Many of our recommendations were in fact introduced during the fall with the economic speech in November. Many proposals were introduced into the federal budget. And there are still other proposals that are still, I guess, in the process of being debated. So it was a great experience and hopefully uh, a tool that will be useful for public policy in Canada. So as you think about the, the breadth of that role and the, and the depth of the discussions that you engaged in, what were some of the unique challenges of taking on that leadership role compared to other leadership roles you've had in your career, like, like leading Desjardins? What made this sort of unique? There are some similarities and also differences. Interesting enough, uh, when I started my role as CEO and chair of the board of Desjardins Group, it was in 2008, at the time of the financial crisis. So I had to deal with this complex situation of dealing with very urgent matters, short-term priorities, urgent decisions that you need to take almost every day. But at the same time, dealing with important matters, looking at what would it be for Desjardins, when the sky will be blue? What will be the strategic roadmap after the time of the crisis? So to a certain extent, you know, it was kind of a similar process because my view is that the crisis is always difficult to manage because you need to concentrate on urgent matters and, and dealing with issues that sometimes are very difficult from a social and people point of view. But at the same time, it creates a context that is so special in bringing people to think about change, thinking about transformation, thinking about well, you know, the statu quo is not any more acceptable. So what should we do, be doing? So to a certain extent, there were similarities between, uh, you know, the role at Desjardins. But at the same time, what I did was to start to think about what will happen after this crisis. And I asked a group of close to 200 young leaders that we had in the organization. Asking them to eliminate the constraints, 
looking at trends, looking at opportunities, looking at challenges that we had at Desjardins. So taking the crisis as something that you need to resolve, but at the same time, building the consensus, building the change culture to go to, you know, a new journey. The big difference between the Industry Strategy Council and Desjardins is not about the process, it's not about the stakeholder engagement, it's not about how you can come with an industrial strategy or an investment growth plan, because those are the things that you can see in the report and the recommendations to the government. But it is when you are done with the report, you need to accept that you are presenting recommendations to the government, but you don't have the political legitimacy to execute and implement. It becomes the role of the government to take what they think is appropriate in the report and introduce that in legislation, in the budget, or not taking some of those recommendations. And you need to accept that because this is part of public service. Yes, and and, and I think one of the themes that you're hitting on that is so important is this notion that you can't build for the way the world was. You have to think about the way the world is going to become. And and certainly, as I, I read through your report, one area I found very interesting was the writings and the recommendations you made around environmental, social, and governance, or ESG, and how you, you prefaced the importance of this as part of reimagining Canada post the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm curious, Vinny, when did you personally really begin to, to become focused and concerned about the issues of ESG? Well, thank you very much for the question. And that's so true. The ESG thinking is fundamental into the way we've been thinking about the report. The reason is very simple. In essence, we believe that Canada, when you think about all the countries in the world, can be an ESG leader because we have the resources, we have the social conditions and the appropriate governance overall to take that leadership position. And we believe that Canadian companies can do that too. And this is a very significant opportunity going forward. It's about being, you know, respectful of their environment and the way we are managing the resources. It's about social conditions. And that's part of the philosophy of dealing with inequalities and so forth that is so ingrained into the cooperative spirit. And it's about governance which is also governance with many stakeholders. And by definition, the cooperative model, even though it's not the perfect model, try to bring this kind of common vision of stakeholders into the governance. So when I made the decision to join Desjardins, and certainly when I decided to propose my name to become chair of the board and president in 2008, I felt that, you know, those ESG beliefs were at the core of what I was to do if I were to be elected president. Provides uh, a lot of 
positive energy and, and commitment from employees when you are able to go in that direction. And you can expand the role of your organization if you take Desjardins, but it could be the same thing with the government or it could be the same thing with any large organization. When you engage yourself, you bring a lot of communities around you. So you have your customers, you have your employees, you have other people, partners, providers of services around you that you can engage. So it provides, you know, a, a kind of momentum that I think we need to have in this country, but also overall for society. So if there is one thing I hope that the COVID will have brought, uh, considering all the difficulties that we have, is this kind of renewal of the ESG philosophy and commitment. Well, I completely agree with you, Monique, because again, one of the things that that does is it allows the real leaders in industry to actually be given credit for it relative to their peers when they can all begin to tell a common story. And, and I think that is important. And I also think it's important, as you say, that at times there has to be leadership in the corporate sector to help to move governments forward, to help to move the policy conversation forward. And I'm interested in what more do you think leaders in corporate Canada can do to give government more courage around pushing forward on this ESG agenda? What do you think should happen next? Well, I, I think that uh, if you want to uh, engage any stakeholders into a journey, you need to start with yourself, the first step. So I think that corporate leaders in this country should engage not because it is good to do it, not because we need to do it because there will be regulations. We need to do it. We need to be engaged because this is good for society. This is good for the business. And this is good, you know, for the economy. And when you start to do that, you know, naturally, uh, leadership will bring followers. And, and I think that in that context, there could be very meaningful conversation between the private sector and the government. And ESG is a very nice way to approach this renewed partnership between the private and the public sectors, it seems to me. I'm very confident that we can do it because this is a shared objective. It cannot be done just by governments. It cannot be done just by businesses. It cannot be done just by individuals. It's really our capacity to collaborate, cooperate on this journey uh, that I think could help us to position Canada as a leader in the world. And we have the capacity to do it. So if we take the different elements of ESG for a moment and we, and we talk about each of them specifically, and, and let's start with the environment. The federal government did sign off on the Paris Agreement and pledged to cut our emissions by 40 to 45 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. Are you personally satisfied with that commitment? Is that what we should aspire to? Should we aspire to something more? What are your views on that? Well, my views is that some people may say that we should be more ambitious, but I think that what is important is really to engage get organized and move forward. So I think that what, in my view, is the most important thing is to get not just the commitment at the level of the government, but also bring the private sector 
into uh, the conversation and develop a joint action plan because if we want to get to those numbers, there are, you know, specific investments and activities that will have to happen in this country. And I guess that the role of government uh, in that context, and it's not just one government, by the way, it's a combination of, you know, different levels of government to collaborate with the private sector. And also when you start to think about it and you move to the S of ESG, Canada is one of the rare countries in the world providing energy with appropriate social policies. So we are naturally in a position with the size of the resources that we have contributing to the GDP. When we look at the social policies that we have, when we think about the energy sector compared to other countries, we are fantastically and strategically positioned, again, to take a strong leadership. And that's the way I hope that the conversation between governments and the private sector will engage. Well, Monique, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think this question of how does Canada really become a global powerhouse in clean tech is one of the major issues for business and government to try to work through together as part of how do we create a greater Canada by 2030. As you did your work with the council and all the conversations you had, did you see some real bright lights in this country of organizations or governments that, that really understood how to collaborate together in sort of creating this, this new Canada going forward? Were there some really insightful ideas you saw? One thing that, you know, was so obvious during the course of the work is the level of commitment and engagement that so many people have in this country. During the time of the consultation, we felt that there was also a momentum in this country to bring different organizations and regions to work together. Because some people realize, even though we might have our differences, we might have more in common than we could have with other countries. And the crisis was a moment of truth when we had to face some difficult decisions and that people realized that, well, you know, maybe it is better for all of us to work together in Canada than trying to see what's going on with other countries. That's where I think that we have this particular opportunity. So I'd like to move on to a topic that I understand is incredibly important to you, as well as our country overall, and that is gender equality. You did tremendous work at Desjardins to move this forward, including organizational restructuring to drive women in leadership positions, especially as you were the first woman to lead a top 10 Canadian financial institution. Now, as you think about the journey Desjardins underwent to create a more equitable organization for women, are there lessons learned that you believe could be applied more broadly to how we achieve greater diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion across other groups in corporate Canada today? A few observations that I would like to share and, and suggestions. First of all, you need to recognize clearly where you are. So you need to start with good facts, just to start with, because sometimes you may think that you have diversity, 
that you have inclusion. But the reality of the facts could be different. So the first step is to have a good assessment of the situation. The second is with the stakeholders and your employees, and it could include the customers. It could, it, it depends on, you know, the situation. In Desjardins, it was a very broad stakeholders assessment that we did. The second step was to develop an aspiration. Where do we want to be? What do we want to achieve? We'll take some conversations. So just to have this opportunity to develop an aspiration together is important. The third step is after that, when you have this common aspiration to develop an action plan that will not be temporary. You cannot go into the DNI journey thinking that you can resolve it in three months. It's impossible. And I'm so happy that my successor at Desjardins is also very committed to their journey because I cannot pretend that I was able to do everything that I would have liked during my term, my two terms at Desjardins. So you need to engage the aspiration. You need to commit to the action plan. And this uh, creates a fantastic momentum when you start the journey. So this is certainly an invitation that I would like to share with uh, all the CEOs or leaders of organization, whatever they are in governments or in the private sector. Well, and one of the sad realities of what we've seen through COVID is that women's workforce participation has dipped to 55% for the first time since the mid-1980s. So again, there's a real challenge, I think, for corporate leaders and government leaders to take immediate action starting this summer to start to reverse that. And just based on your years of, of leadership experience, do you have specific advice for people of what to do about that phenomena, you know, starting now? Well, the first step, and I think that uh, what we had in the budget, the federal budget was very positive, is to talk openly about childcare services, making sure that families and women in particular are in a situation to get back to the work with an appropriate level of support and with a support that is accessible. So this is the first step to start and have a very open conversation between the employer, the HR centers of the various companies and the employees to talk about issues and situations that sometimes have to be adjusted in a way that is very personal. So that's uh, maybe the first step. The second step, is to, I would say, develop more flexibility into the way we are proceeding with the employees. And, and that's part of the DNI initiative also. If we want to have more women to re-engage into the economy, into the work that they are doing uh, with our companies, we need to have this kind of open mind and flexibility to get back to fully recover uh, the opportunities that they have in each uh, organization. I completed my degree uh, and I started as a CPA beginning of the 80s. At that point in time, Duncan, it's so interesting. We were less than 5% women starting in accounting firms 
and completing programs. And frankly speaking, when you look at the situation now, it's a real evolution. Might not be perfect, but no comparison to what it was in the 80s. And very often women will be more inclined to look at the risk side of the equation than, you know, the opportunity side of the equation. So the fourth piece would be to accelerate the support, the development of initiatives, programs to increase the number of women entrepreneurs, but entrepreneurs in sectors and areas where they can put their companies as global leaders, not just as local enterprises, I would say. There's no question that that broadening the ambition and broadening the perspective of organizations in Canada to really aspire to be global powerhouses and not just a good little firm in Canada is one of the real needs that we have of really propelling our society forward. And in your case, as someone who has sat at boardroom tables for many years, I'd like to get some of your thoughts on the role of governance with respect to how organizations implement and sustain some of these uh, long ambitions that they have around ESG. And how do you see the relationship between the board and its chair and the executive and their CEO in achieving ESG goals together? At the end of the day, it has to be complementary. It uh, requires uh, substantial discussions and conversations. I think that ESG is certainly a topic that should be part of the strategic roadmap of the organization and deserve a substantial conversation between the board and the management team. It has to be fully integrated and it has to be part of the way we are thinking about the governance, but also the way we are thinking about the social posture and the environmental posture of the campaign or the organization. So I can see that, you know, I'm, I'm the chair of the ESG committee of the board of Michelin. And it's, it's quite recent. It's quite new. We started six months ago. So we are really at the beginning of the journey at the board level. But I have to say that for the CEO, for the management team, it is part, you know, of the commitment that they have on this topic and fully integrated into the strategy. And that's, uh, that's very motivating. So that's what I hope for all companies uh, to have in terms of this complementary approach between the board and uh, the management team. Regarding gender diversity, which is part of the ESG uh, consideration in terms of governance and, and social considerations. Monique, I absolutely agree. A united approach and integrated effort is the only way to move forward. Now let's switch gears back to the Industry Strategy Council. Now the work you led included recommendations around prioritizing vaccination and testing the critical role of reskilling talent to help us to recover and reimagine the workforce and it spoke to the industries that have been particularly hard hit that need support and stability, for example, travel and tourism. As you think about where we are right now, how might we continue to prioritize public health and safety while still allowing industries like travel and tourism to begin to more effectively recover? 
So what I think right now is that, first of all, we have the vaccines. Personally, I'm very pleased with the fact that governance overall in this country have decided to involve the private sector in a way that is very proactive. So this was the first recommendation that we made. Let's make sure to engage the private sector and the citizens into testing, tracing, vaccinating in something that, you know, this is the new journey that we are in. So I think that this is positive. We need to continue to do that. And my second observation was also to come up, and that's what I think is going on right now, how we can develop the government, the private sector, and different associations and groups, a coordinated action plan that will be safe, but at the same time will progressively bring all of us into a normal situation to get back to having contacts, physical contacts, personal contacts, because I believe, and I'm you know, thinking about myself, even though it's very efficient to be connected virtually, and I've been able to travel across the Canada in a way that would have been impossible otherwise, and not just in Canada, but also in other countries, I have to say that I'm tired. I have to say that I feel the pressure, the stress of this virtual environment and that I'm missing to do my work the way that I'm used to do it. I miss the personal contact. I miss this possibility of looking, you know, in the eyes of people and, and feeling the situation. So I think that from a pure mental health point of view, but also from a governance and management point of view. We need slowly but surely to put in place an action plan balancing well the security in terms of sanitary conditions, but at the same time, bringing all of us back to school, to universities, to the offices, and to some travel. And it's not just for the sake of the economy, but it is for the sake of society and people at the end of the day. So I'm very optimistic that we should get there progressively this fall and hopefully starting in 2022. Well, and there's no question that as we all think about the reality of being leaders in business today, be it on boards, be it on executive teams, we have the reality of a government that appropriately had to invest a lot to keep stability in our society and take on significant debt loads. We have the reality, as you say, of the health and well-being of people, not only in fighting COVID-19, but their overall mental wellness as well. And at the same time, how does business re-engage in a way where we don't go back and do what we did, but we innovate and grow in a much more sustainable, responsible manner into the future? Those are sort of the you know, some of the many significant issues that all leaders will face. And if you were to sit down with a new incoming CEO in the summer of 21, as you were a new incoming CEO in the summer of 08, and say, with what I've seen and what I've learned, if I were to give you this piece of advice, what would that advice be? It would be, let's make sure that 
developing the plan that you have for your organization. Think about it long term. Think about it for sustainable prosperity. That's what I would say. Well, thank you so much again for having this time with us today. We greatly appreciate the conversation, wonderful insights and wonderful perspectives. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. Very much. Thank you for listening to the first season of Courage Incorporated. It's been a terrific year listening to the chorus of voices that contribute to our country's economic well-being. I hope you enjoyed all of them. I certainly did. Be sure to look out for season two of Courage Incorporated, launching this fall. Until then, stay safe and be courageous. Our country needs you. I'll look forward to speaking with you soon.